I welcome you all to Sunday service at Ananda. Um, my name is Ananta, this is Maria, and we're very glad you could join us today, uh, whether as guests from the Expanding Light or on the internet or in whatever form you're here. Uh, today's <clears throat> topic is Perfection is Self-Transcendence. This is from Rays of the One Light, parallel passages um, by Swami Kriyananda from the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita. Truth is one, this week is perf- perfection is self-transcendence. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. We begin this week with a passage from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 5. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. If ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the tax collectors the same? And if ye salute your brothers only, what do ye more than others? Do not even pagans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. This teaching is a continuation of last week's lesson. To love all equally is possible only by seeing God everywhere, in others as well as in oneself. See whatever comes to you unasked for as a manifestation of his will. Be grateful for the pains you experience, for they are healing strokes of his love. Sometimes healing is effected only by strong measures, but his love for you is manifested in the very attempt to heal. Strive always to be impersonal, as though whatever happens to you were happening to someone else. Persecution gives us the supreme opportunity to deny the thought, this is happening to me, and to affirm our inner freedom from the thought of ego. Don't allow the negative perceptions of others to become your own self-definitions. Seek God. This is the true goal of life. And And though how difficult to cling to it in the midst of hatred, spite, and persecution. The Bhagavad Gita tells us in the seventh chapter, out of thousands, one strives for spiritual attainment, and out of many blessed True seekers who strive assiduously to reach me, one perhaps perceives me as I am. O true seeker, be one among all those thousands who seek the supreme goal. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. like to read from Yogananda's Whispers from Eternity, and the title of this reading is, O King of All Our Ambitions, Open the Doors of Noble Aspirations in the Mansion of Our Souls. Open our heart bud to thy love, and let the fragrance of our love escape its prison of ego to merge in thee. On winds of cosmic perception, 
May our fragrance be swept to thy temple of infinity. O King of all true ambition, throw open wide thy windows everywhere, in the red cloud at sunset, in the rosy, glad clouds at dawn, in every charm-clad dream of human hopes. Open the doors of all noble aspirations that lead from our ego mansions into the vast panorama of thy bliss. Let our fragrance blow with thy breath, reminding all nature of thy unseen presence. Welcome, everybody. At the beginning of this year, the staff of the Ananda Farm here at Ananda Village went to our annual meeting with uh, growers in Nevada County. And that meeting is to discuss what kind of seed we're growing for the local seed cooperative. We were given a seed. And as it turns out, these seeds, uh, well, in about 2003, there was an archaeological dig on the northern borders of Wisconsin and Michigan. And at that dig site, they found these clay balls about the size of a tennis ball, totally intact. And when they shook them, they made a noise. They cracked them open, and inside were seeds. And these seeds were given to the descendants of the tribes that used to live there and to grow, see if they would grow. And in fact, two of the seeds grew and produced food. And that food is a winter squash. It's about this long, kind of narrow. Its seed cavity can produce up to 600 seeds. It tastes good. It keeps till April, which is real important for food, you know, storing your food in the winter. And it has at least twice the vitality of our domesticated varieties. But the really amazing thing about it is that these seeds are over 800 years old. And certainly some shaman or medicine woman prayed over these seeds. I don't know if it was the intention to have them last that long, but certainly through a season, many seasons, so that they would have seeds to plant for next year's crop and for food for their tribe. So in a very similar way, we are like a seed of divine consciousness. We've been prayed over. The grace of the masters is upon us. We've been given every opportunity in this life to grow and to transcend ego consciousness, material consciousness. Will we take it? So many people, given the opportunity of this life, given birth, incarnation in a human body, There's so many things worth doing, worth experiencing, worth seeking. And it can keep us very busy for a long, long time. Yogananda, in his autobiography of a yogi, he said, oftentimes we seek a balm for the ego in one way or another, whether it's through the experiences of life, doing them well, doing them perfectly, or so we think, And in all of this, as the Gita says, out of so many, out of thousands, 
one strives to know me. And out of these many, perhaps one knows me as I am. So Yogananda, he says, our chances are better. Our chances are better than these odds. We have the grace of the masters. We have teaching that is specifically designed to help us move beyond material consciousness. Yogananda said, it is the, the ego is the soul attached to the body. And so we can think of the whole of the spiritual path as breaking this attachment and reawakening that remembrance of that divine spark within each one of us. There is a story about a prince And this prince one day heads out into the jungles of Hindustan and he is hunting and he has a whole retinue of people with him. And they have a lot of success. It's a good day. And at the end of the day, they're racing back homeward as fast as they can because night is approaching and they can hear the beasts of the jungle. It's a real thing. And... But they, they, they find themselves lost, and it's getting a little scary. And they race faster and faster and faster, but still have no sense of being anywhere you know, on the right path home. And they come across this cottage in the forest, and it's shabby. There's a hole in the roof, and there's really not much to it. And the prince gets off his horse, and he heads towards the cottage, and he calls out, is there anyone there? And this hermit comes walking out. And the first thing the hermit says before the prince can say anything else, do you need water? And this is what was foremost in the prince's mind. Besides getting home, if they found a place, they had food with them, they had no water, they were really thirsty. He couldn't believe that this hermit had made this connection. And he said to the hermit, what are you doing living here? Aren't you afraid of tigers? Aren't you afraid of snakes and the beasts of the jungle? And the hermit said, no, these are, the tigers are my pussycats, the snakes are my pets. And right then the prince noticed that this, this hermit had these two snakes coiled around his neck. And he couldn't believe it. And he looked more closely and he came toward the hermit and the, the snakes, the cobras, these were cobras, and they reared up, expanded their hoods and hissed at him. And the hermit whispered to him and said, shh, 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 quiet. And they quieted down. And then right then this big tiger comes into the cottage through the doors that don't exist. And they're horrified. They're about to run for their lives. And the hermit says, don't worry, don't worry. And he just taps, pets the tiger on the top of the head. And he's subdued and slunks out into the forest. And the prince is just beside himself. And he's, uh, the, the hermit offers them fruit, offers them water. They stay the night in relative security because the hermit is there. Evidently, he can tame the wilds. And the next morning, the prince wants to thank him. And he's so grateful. He's saved their lives. He's fed them. He's been so generous, so very generous. And he said, I want to give you something. I want to give you this stone. This stone was given to my father by a mystic alchemist. And my father gave it to me. It's worth more to me than my very life. But I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to give it to you for this year. And I want you to use it to create what you really deserve. It'll turn anything it touches to gold. Turn all these rocks, these stones to gold, and build yourself a big palace. And the hermit really doesn't want it. I, it actually, you know, it's been 
the prince has said this is more than my life, and the hermit doesn't want that stone, but he can't, he can't say no, and so he takes it and he sticks it into the folds of his garment. And the prince says, I'll be back in a year to get it. And so the year goes by and the prince returns. And he's so surprised. Here stands this very same cottage in even worse condition now. He, sh- he thinks that the hermit is gone or died or something. And he gets off his horse. He goes toward the cottage. Hello, hello, is there anybody there? And out comes the hermit. And he says, what have you done? You haven't done anything. I've given you this stove, uh, this stone. It could have created a palace for you. It could have made you the richest person in the world. Why, why didn't you use it? And the hermit said, I had, I had no need of it. And, he said, and the prince said, I want it back. And he said, well, actually, I don't have it. He said, it must have dropped out of my, my garment when I went down to bathe just after you left. And the prince fainted to the ground in a swoon. He was overcome. He just couldn't believe he'd, he'd lost this. And the hermit said, don't worry. Let us go down to the river and we'll find it. We'll find it. God will give it to us. And the prince was, you've got to be crazy. The river, the torrents, the water, it's, you know, but somehow the magnetism of the hermit held them. And they go down there to the water and the prince says, take your handkerchief and lower it into the waters and pray to the Lord of the universe, the giver of all things, to return to you this very same stone. And so the prince did that, and he lowered the handkerchief into the water, he pulls it up, and not only is his stone there, but there are two dozen other stones, and they all turn things to gold. And the prince, because he tests them out, and they're all working, (laughs) and everyone in his group, of course, is thrilled, but the the prince is speechless. And he looks at the stones and he looks at the hermit. He looks back at the stones. He looks at the hermit and he takes all of them in the cloth and he bundles it up and he throws it back into the water. And every, you know, his group is horrified. And he goes over to the hermit and he kneels at his feet and he says, I, I want what you have. And anyone who can look at these stones that'll turn things to gold and see nothing but the merest pebble, that's what I want. And he was able to make that break from material consciousness by that grace, by that divine presence. When I think of an instrument in this life for me of one who has transcended that consciousness, I think of Swami Kriyananda. When I first met him, I had never read his book. It wasn't out then. I'd never heard him speak. It was his birthday party, very informal gathering. But I recognized in his vibration someone who knew more than anyone I'd ever met, someone who knew more than I would ever know. And that it was a very clear, strong feeling. And my life here at Ananda, when I did move to live here, everything that he did... Everything that he said, everything that he didn't say validated that initial feeling. The first Christmas I spent here at Ananda, uh, at the meditation retreat, I wasn't living here and Swamiji said, come back, come for the all-day meditation. So I did. I was in my last year at college. And it was Christmas morning, the meditation was wonderful. By the grace of God and Guru, I got through it. 
and, uh, and it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And the next day was Christmas, and Swamiji came in and he said, I have two Christmas presents today. I could only bring, I could only get two. And it, this was the Christmas after immediately following the fire that swept through Ananda Village. It burned all of the homes that community people at that time lived in. And so people were literally homeless and without very much and finding ways to make do. And Swami gave these two gifts. One of these was a dining room, a dining room table set, and the other was a coffee table. People didn't have anything. And this was symbolic of, you know, reestablishing our lives on the physical plane. And my thought was, because obviously a little more centered in the ego, these must be really special people. These must be really incredibly spiritual, deserving people. But I realized after that, when I kept considering that and what was taking place and what was happening, Swamiji treated everybody that way. It didn't matter if you had or didn't have, if you were here today for the first time or you'd been here for years. He treated everybody with unconditional love. He treated everybody as a divine friend. And even in adversity in his life, tests and challenges that he uh, came up against, that he had to experience and move through, that never changed. Always that generosity, always that care for others. There was never the thought, the thought, uh, this is happening to me, or why is this happening to me? Nothing about it was personal. It was just, this is happening. And somehow God, through this, is blessing me. And that blessing, I am going to continue to share with other people. When I was uh, in college, at that, before I came onto the spiritual path, at a certain point I had the thought, it doesn't matter what you do, what matters is how you do it. It was a very important teaching for me in understanding my place in the world and what was significant and what wasn't and in what direction I needed to move. And that how is really, really important because that how is, it acts like a feedback mechanism. And if we look at our lives and really try to observe how we are responding, how we are living in every circumstance, in every condition, then we've got, we've got that direct feedback. This is taking me closer to God. This is strengthening my ego, you know, one or the other. Swamiji said, become, to become perfect, uh, becoming perfect is, you become perfect when you are perfect. That was it. You become perfect when you are perfect. In other words, if we want to transcend the ego, then we need to practice living in that transcendence. We need to really look at our lives closely, um, not in the sense of being analytical, but being more the observer and really seeing, you know, how am I living my life? How did I say this? Did I say this in a way that was really, you know, not of the ego, or is there some attachment here? I remember someone um, criticizing me once in some particular thing, and my an in- instant reaction was very egoic. I instantly reacted. I instantly tried to defend myself. 
And afterwards, even during, I really didn't, I just felt terrible. I just was so embarrassed and knew it was wrong, but didn't really know what to do. And I was down in such a hole, I couldn't quite extricate myself, you know, in the moment. Many years later, a, a situation happened when, from an egoic level, there was a lot more at stake. My whole identity, if, you know, from an egoic level was in a particular thing, the way people looked at me, the way people saw me, all of this. And there was this difference of opinion between me and someone else. And it was a very different situation, thank God. And I felt that experience of not coming at it from the ego. It doesn't always happen, but it did in this instance. And I could be more the observer, and I could say to this person, do whatever you need to do, because it just didn't, it didn't matter. What mattered was that I respond appropriately that I respond not of the ego, but in connection with the divine and caring about that most, caring most about the divine will through my life, not something that I needed to do or people perceived me as a certain way or any of this. And when I did that, instantly it was so very liberating. It was so liberating. It just didn't matter. There would be a particular set of repercussions. You know, if it went this way, there'd be a particular set of repercussions if it went that way. But neither of it really mattered. It felt so liberating. It was so freeing. And it allowed the situation to move as it needed to in accordance with the karma of people involved. And ultimately, it all turned out fine. One time when Master was criticized by one of the disciples and... uh, They were just, for whatever reason, you know, some centeredness in the ego, identification with what they were doing, were speaking against Master and spreading different things about him. And word got back to him through some of the other disciples, and they said, you should really do something. You should say something to this person. This isn't good. It's not good for him. It's not good for the work. And Master picked up the phone and called this person and and just told him, you know, I'm so grateful for what you're doing there, all the good work that you're doing. It's just fabulous and just pumped all this divine energy, you know, at this person and then just let it be. What a beautiful, beautiful response. What a beautiful tool if we can get behind it to to end the ego. If even a little bit, maybe we've reacted, whatever, but to then pray for that person, pray for that situation, come back to that firm foundation in God, in God's will, in the divine will. Swami Kriyananda wrote a wonderful book called Sadhu Beware. And there's a whole segment in that book, Transcendence of the Ego. It's fabulous. And he's not just talking about it, but he enumerates many, many, many. It's the whole chapter. And they're all just points in which he talks about how to do it what to look for, you know, how can we transcend that ego in daily life, inactivity and behavior, very, very practical. And one of the things he says that uh, I always keep more to the fore, he says, be aware of any tension collecting at the medulla. That's where the seat of the ego is. And when we feel tension there, he says, make an offering of that tension to the spiritual eye. It's really that simple. Just give that energy Help that energy, allow that energy to move toward spirit. And the the attachment on an egoic level 
is more minimized. We can be more the observer. We can look at our life as though we're looking at someone else living it. I remember a dream I had once, and I was very conscious that it was me, but I wasn't in it. I was in it, but I wasn't, there wasn't that level of attachment. I mean, I could watch it, and I knew it was me. And me in the dream had lost everything. I didn't have a home. I didn't have a job. I didn't have any financial means at all. I didn't have shelter. For whatever reason, my friends were unable to help me in any of those capacities at the time. And so in the dream, I was seeking guidance from somebody and saying, you know, what should I do? But the energy of it was what was so remarkable. It was what, I wasn't sitting there sobbing. I wasn't, you know, paranoid about being let loose, you know, with nothing. I was really joyful. And this person said, well, get a job. Go out there, do what you need to do to, you know, reestablish yourself again. And in the dream, I was so excited I just thought, wow, this is so exciting. There's so many possibilities, you know, and and just this anticipation of something new and something different and something possible and that something good would come from it. And again, being able to step back, you know, that's usually the problem. We can't step back. We're in the thick of it. And it's our ego and there's a great deal at stake. We've got so much wrapped up in it. But if we can step back, and see it in a larger context, it's fun. It's, you know, what a drama, what a leela. We've come into this incarnation, we're God's instrument. We're God's channel. You know, we're, we're, the, we're a, a God's bodily temple through which he gets to act and live and serve and try this and do that. And, you know, in attunement with God, not for ourselves. But it's just, it's, it's so beautiful when we can just step back that little distance and observe and not feel like this is happening to me. And this is happening to me. Why is this happening? What did I do wrong? Why am I so bad that I attracted this thing? And we make it so personal. And it doesn't need to be personal. If we just let it go through, it's very liberating. And it can be the instrument perhaps through which others are helped. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And so every time, you know, in our practices as well, every time we, for example, energize, Yogananda said, you don't know what you have in these exercises. Every time we energize, we break that cord of material consciousness because we're thinking of ourselves as cosmic energy. Every time we meditate, every time we do Kriya, we're severing that cord of attachment the soul to the body. And so in all of these ways, we're liberating the soul, we're freeing the soul. And that's, that's the point of this incarnation for us, is this divine dance with divine mother. And it's not, it's not so particular as to be just what is happening to us, but what is happening through us of God, what is happening through us of a divine nature. That's the opportunity. That's the little seed that Divine Mother has planted in our consciousness. And she's doing everything she can to water it and give it a fertile setting that it can grow, that it can become something beautiful. And all we need to do is join her in that and just watch. 
Just watch that plant grow. Watch that plant become a divine instrument. Watch that plant become the free soul that it is in God.